Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Coming to you practically live, but this time not from high above the Mellow Mushroom, and not even from Franklin, Tennessee. We're coming to you uh, from the left coast, from Studio B in San Luis Obispo. And uh, your host this week is not me, Nate Larkin. It is the Commodore himself. Hey, Aaron. <laughs> hey, I feel like I was marooned the last couple weeks. The ship yeah, left without yeah. me. We missed you. We really did miss you. Uh, but it's good to hear your voice. Uh, good to have your uh, steadying hand on the show here. Uh, what... <laughs> That's, my hands have never been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> What's new out there in the, the beautiful central coast of uh, California? Yeah, we are just... Uh... We're cruising in summertime. The kids are all around, and uh, it has been fun. We're going on our first vacation in a very, very long time. I, I keep saying, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, me too. I need it. I feel like I'm running out of words. I feel yeah. it in sermons more than any other time when I know mm -hmm. I need a vacation. Yeah. I just get to about 15 minutes and think, why are we all doing this? Let's go have a picnic. Why are we still talking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going up to Oregon, and uh, we, boy, we tried, we tried to give the kids a pool this summer. We're at this new place, and there was just enough room in the backyard to go fence to sidewalk and put in one of those 18-foot easy-up pools where you oh, yeah, huh? inflate the ring, and then it floats. And I had tried a 10-foot version of one of those, boy, Samuel was probably four. It, it was it was more than ten years ago, and I didn't take seriously the leveling uh, advice. <laughs> and being a non-engineer, I didn't consider how much water weight in a oh, three and a half foot man. pool, ten feet around. Eight, so, eight pounds per gallon, brother. That is a lot of cubic yeah. feet and poundage tonnage so yeah slowly it started bulging out one side mm -hmm. so we we spent a lot of time we spent a week just trying to get our ground level did all that stuff finally get the pool and we got a tax return so we could afford to buy the pool and right. we're so excited the kids have been waiting we try to inflate the ring and it sort of inflates but doesn't get really hard we find one hole in it, and we're like, ah, so I duct tape that up real quick. Tried to inflate it again, and thought, okay, it's it's at least pretty much inflated. So we put two inches of water in and yeah. started flattening out the bottom. And then I went inside for about an hour, came out, the ring is totally deflated again. Right. So we have this defective pool now with two inches of water covering 18 feet. Yeah. Uh, and we have to do the process of how do we take this back to the store? Yeah. Which was way harder than bringing it to our house from the store. Yeah. It was, uh, it was really interesting being out there with my kids because I have a, it is not a love hate relationship. It is a pure hate relationship with inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. Everything goes wrong. When this happened, Jenny just nodded and said, yep, that's what happens to you every time. <laughs> 
Why do you even try with these things? <laughs> Nothing ever works out with me when it comes to inanimate yeah. objects. Yeah. And uh, so having my two sons out there getting equally frustrated and yeah. showing their frustration in their own ways yeah. was fascinating because I became the coach of, okay, I'm really angry right now. Son number one, you are making me angry in this way because I'm angry. How are you being made to be angry right now? We like talk through that process because I, they're at that age where I, I can't just be frustrated and angry and have that not affect them. Yeah. So it was it was very interesting. I, I don't know if it was a win in the end for the fu- the future of their brains, but it was it was interesting. They're wow. they're starting their journey and their hate hatred towards inanimate objects, and now all of a sudden I got the hiccups. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so what's going on there in Tennessee? Well, you know, uh, life marches on. It's Allie and I are having a wonderful time. We're grandparents now. Uh, we spent the last weekend out in Knoxville, Tennessee, with our youngest son and his wife and our youngest grandchild, uh, 15 months old. Uh, he's mobile now and has about a 15-word vocabulary, although he comprehends a whole lot more than that. And, uh, you know, I used to, when I was a young guy, I just didn't get grandparents. I didn't get all the pictures they had to show. I didn't I didn't understand their just rabid attachment to uh, little people. But I have found I'm just uh, obsessed over my grandkids. I think I'm a better grandfather than I was, uh, certainly more attentive as a grandfather and more appreciative of the value of life, I think as a grandfather than I was as a dad. So we just had a blissful three days out in Knoxville, Tennessee, playing with that little boy. That's awesome. Uh, Yeah. That's going to be hard. Uh, Is it, there is a possibility that in the future, that uh, group of your family might be migrating back down south. Is that, is that? Yeah. Yeah. They've got that. They've got that uh, very much in the planning stages. We were there and the, for sale sign is in the front yard. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, they're planning to move farther away. I've been very spoiled. You know, I've got five of my six grandkids are right here in town with us. The farthest, uh, so Charlie, little Charlie, at three hours away was the farthest from us. And it'll be a two-day trip to see him as soon as they move. Well, but I, I know. Yeah, you'll have a lot of speaking engagements all of a sudden down in Florida. Yeah, I do. I do think so. I think I'll be required to go to Florida on a regular basis and stay for extended lengths of time. Uh, yeah. which, which you've never minded the the having to go down to Florida action. You can avoid hey, the I, hurricanes and enjoy the sand. Right. Well, we're heading we're heading south quite a bit lately. I'm just uh, we're in the process now of uh, planning for a trip to Cuba in November with uh, some of the Samson guys from Miami. Really, really? looking forward to what? taking Samson down to the island. So uh, are there some churches down in Cuba that are wanting to start this up, or is this just a manly, fun road trip like the, oh. the pub walk? <laughs> no, no, no. We're going down there at the request of the churches. Uh, the church is booming in Cuba in much the same way as it is in China. has to do so underground, and... Uh, you know, persecution 
And, uh, you know, danger does nothing but enliven the Church. One of the main reasons so the what? Church tr- struggles in America is because we're so complacent, fat, and happy. Yeah. Uh, well, what is but, the persecution like in Cuba? I mean, I only hear about cigars from Cuba. <laughs> well, uh, you know, churches, uh, gatherings, I, I'll have much more specific information when I get back. But church gatherings are, uh, sizable gatherings are, are illegal. So most of these churches meet surreptitiously in homes. Uh, it's, uh, it has to be small group based because large meetings are outlawed. Then people are, you know, forced into relationship, and there's an awful lot of poverty as well. So uh, there's not the distraction of, uh, you know, capitalistic materialism and all that success and consumerism that dogs us here. So people are, they, are making. Are they still kind of a, a holdout of old Russian-style communism, really? If oh, yeah. So. Yeah, they're kind of like they're, they're kind of the, the last holdouts for, Mar- you know, Leninism, Marxism. You know, all of that is changing now, uh, but slowly, because the Castros are, even you know, Fidel is kind of, you know, President Emeritus, uh, but his... And his brothers in charge. There are incremental changes, but still, they live a very isolated life over there. And uh, you know, the, uh, we could talk politics. I'm not equipped, really, at this point, to talk politics about Cuba. It will be interesting. I'm just looking. Well, I'll be interested because you were in China, and they had yeah. such a. To me, there's such an odd kind of communism at this point because of the wealth mm-hmm. that's come through that country. I mean, it's, it's right. changed. <laughs> They're not purists. Yeah. That Let's just say that. No, yeah, um, they found a way to marry capitalism and what they're calling communism. Uh, it's but They still have a very authoritarian governmental structure in China, as they do uh, in Cuba. And it'll be interesting to see whether Cuba takes in uh, page from the Chinese book, and you know, tries to move in that capitalistic. They they have allowed uh, a l- small time capitalism, little private gardens here and there, um, and they they do a big tourist trade, uh, although not from the U.S. Uh, it'll be interesting to see. But I'm mostly looking forward. I have a brother who goes over on a regular basis, and he's clued me into just the vibrancy. Uh, of the church in Cuba. Uh, the gospel is spreading there like wildfire. There's really uh, quite an awakening going on in that island, and I'm looking forward to being a part of it. But I do know this. I do know that uh, the issues that men face don't uh, all go away with uh, you know, religious conversion, that you can be in love with Jesus, uh, you can be committed to the gospel, and still have a real uh, moral fight on your hands. And until we learn to bring all of that out in the open and fight together, uh, there's still, you know, that can be a recipe for disaster and despair. I'm looking forward to giving guys a language uh, and some, you know, rudimentary principles, a way to talk about the stuff that all guys fight. And, uh, We'll see where it goes. I'm assured by my friends 
from Miami that uh, Cuba needs Samson as much as uh, any other country does. So looking forward to that trip. That'll be in November. In November. That is cool. I Man, I want to figure out how to inflate a raft from here and float over there. Have to yeah, go through the Panama yeah. Canal, though. That's a long trip. <laughs> <laughs> but but thank you, Teddy, for working on that Panama Canal so it's even possible for me to float to Cuba. Yes. Well, cool. Well, we've got an interesting guest today. I'm looking forward uh, to an old voice from my past. We have not talked in... We talked yesterday for the first time in probably 15 years, maybe more. And uh, yeah. great, great guy, Jim Ramos from from the left coast. So all right, we will... yeah, and we're we're doing this by the way without Mondo today, who's uh, hard at work feeding his family. We're actually uh, and we're actually recording this in California because Mondo's in the process of moving the studio here. And Newton and his dear bride are off on vacation, so it's just Aaron and me. And, and we'll the, be back with the, that guest here shortly. And before we before we break, because I get to spin yeah. the records today, I uh-huh. because I know what's coming, uh, Jim is going to be talking a lot about the journey and finishing mm-hmm. well, what it is to be a, a senior man in the journey with younger men. So I am going to pull out an old Steve Taylor song called The Finish Line. If you're smart, you won't fast forward through it, but you will listen to these words from Brother Taylor. We'll be right back. Devil stirs and as your vision blows. 
vision came, you saw the odds, a hundred little gods on a gilded wheel. These have tried to take your place, but Father, by your grace, I will never kneel. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Today we have a special guest, Jim Ramos, formerly of California. Used to be a youth pastor for uh, a long time, back when I was a youth pastor. Is he allowed Is he allowed back into the great state of California? Well, it's a matter of do I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> California is a great place to be from. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Well, and now, and now you are up in Washington? Oregon, yes. They're the same Oregon. state, aren't they? Northern Oregon. Same thing. Okay. Pretty close. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where are you at specifically in Oregon? I'm in McMinnville, which is about an hour south of Portland. Okay. And about maybe 45 minutes from the beach. Wow. Although in Oregon, in Oregon, you can know if you're from Oregon because we don't call it the beach. We call it the coast. In California, uh, okay. we say the beach. So that's one of the reasons you know you're from Oregon versus California. And do you still call it the beach? I still call it the beach. <laughs> so you moved up there from California. California, Jim was a youth pastor extraordinaire. You were you were at the Nazarene Church for how long there? I served there for about ten years, and I was in the Youth for Christ in Campus Life five years prior. Yeah, so that was like you know when I knew Jim, he was one of those uh, youth pastors who had actually been doing it a long time. It seems like mm-hmm. most of us were only in it for like a year or two when we were hanging out with you. So you mm-hmm. got you yeah. got to be the big daddy to us. <laughs> sure. And and Jim was a good big daddy. We That's used, great. We used to meet and hang out and uh, had one of the most extraordinarily strange uh, junior high camps in the history of junior high camps. It was epic. It was. <laughs> oh, epic. I have. I have to hear some stories about this. Well, I, I, I what did you should... do? What did you do that made it different? Did you have story time? Well, I, used, I was. I ended up being the speaker because our speaker backed out the last week of the camp, and at one point, I got to use an object lesson of a dead rattlesnake to illustrate wow. the verse where Moses, you know, lifted the snake up. And remember that, Aaron? I do. <laughs> the bloody rattlesnake. We also had another another fun story that Aaron can embellish upon. One of the guys that helped run the camp had a progressive MS. He actually died of it a couple of years ago, but he couldn't hide during our staff hunt, so we put him under inside of a culvert with about six to eight inches of water. It was a, we hit him in the culvert. It was a tube. 
a tube underneath the bridge over the creek. Yeah. And well, and, anyway. and the game. Well, the game. The game was that we all had to hide because there were four youth pastors there, four different churches, and the kids yeah. were supposed to find us. So yeah. And this was was this your idea? I didn't know yeah, this was oh, yeah. not Doug's oh, yeah. idea. The staff hunt. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so he's in there. And we gather the kids up, and he won because we had all been found. And we're like, yay, Doug won. Good for Doug. What, hey, where is Doug right now? And the kids start like this, Doug, are you okay? Where are you, Doug? So you, you can take it from there. Well, apparently during the hunt, a kid walked through the creek and saw this culvert or tunnel that we hit uh, Doug in and just inadvertently threw a rock in there. Well, what he didn't know is he hit Doug right in the eye, broke his glasses. And, oh, no! And so, and, and you know, the height, he was, I mean, he was hypothermic, which kicked his MS in, so he couldn't walk. He went paralyzed on his left leg. So I think Aaron and somebody else oh, yeah. picked him up and no. carried him out. And yeah. he realized he was 6'4", about 300 pounds. And in the process, dropped him. And broke well, no, his no. First, first we got his wheelchair and brought him out. Oh, that's so, right. so he's sitting. There's a an amphitheater of kids, and we're down there, oh. and we're like, "Okay, yay, Doug, you won." Here he is in his wheelchair, and another youth pastor and I said, "All right, we're gonna roll him up, but it's all rocks and gravel." So we tried to get like a a big push to get some momentum. Hits yeah. a rock, the chair just stops, and he makes a noise. I still remember he went, oh, as his body just <laughs> catapults out, but it's paralyzed, and he just lands on the ground in front of all this, like right in front of the kids during amphitheater time. And then, uh, yeah, then we had to carry him up to his room. Found out I just found out yesterday his collarbone got broken from that. And then we Rocha- oh. then we Rochambeaued to see who would uh, take him out of his wet clothes. I remember yeah. that oh, moment as I well. Won. <laughs> yes, you did. I won or I lost. <laughs> oh my! Oh, and this is awful. And this guy was your friend. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's funny. Yeah, the day he died, he blamed me for the collarbone. <laughs> yes, yeah. and I did not remember that. Well, do we, do we want to tell him about the concert. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> we we decided we were going to have a concert. Brought brought a a band in from Fresno. And then there were two little grommet bands of junior high, early high schoolers playing hardcore music. Their dad decided, I want to do this right. So he drives his junior high kids up in a limousine that he owned across the baseball field, driving over at least two or three of the sprinklers there. So caretaker comes out, (laughs) upset. Kids go up, start playing music up in the chapel. And this is some heavy music. Christian music. And the and Christian heavy Christian music, yeah. And someone uh, that was concerned with keeping sacred things sacred, including the room, came up and stopped the concerts with hands held high, and started preaching about the abomination of this music, and that the show oh. was. And all the kids were just sitting there in silence, staring at her, like awkwardly. And yeah. that was the end of the concert. The Fresno Boys never did get to play. But they got paid. So, wow. So yeah, just a just a uh, few moments. There were a couple other uh, ones that stick out, but it was uh, it was quite a week at Camp Destination Known, nineteen ninety nine. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've met students who are twenty eight, thirty years old who still have the shirt. 
Nice. I had still have the shirt. I might have my sweatshirt somewhere around with the little uh, yeah. the little Joker hat on it. So you left uh, youth ministry in California, headed up to where you're currently at. Is, mm-hmm. Was that yes. your first stop? Okay. So take take the story from there. Yeah. So I just uh, I uh, came up to a, a great growing church in 2003, and I served as a youth pastor. Uh, until 2012, I was a full-time, you know, youth pastor, uh, and so I stopped in 2012 and launched a ministry called The Great Hunt for God, and um, during that time period, uh, God called me out of youth ministry and to work specifically with men, and uh, it was a, a radical call in my life. It really shifted everything and changed my whole life, and uh, we prayed about several options, and the one that we least expected or desired was to become full-time missionaries and launch an organization for the most under-targeted people group of the Church, the men. <laughs> so uh, we did that in a town economy, and um, and two years later, here we are, still going strong, uh, miraculously. So what, wow. like, start with the name. You've got the Great Hunt for God. I know you like mountain biking yeah. and hunting and wildernessy things, so how does all that tie together for you? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because uh, I really struggled with the name, <clears throat> and the Great, we are, I do love to hunt fish and mountain bike and all sorts of things, but I am not, this is not a hunting ministry. It comes from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 and 14, where the Apostle Paul says, hey, forgetting what these things, I press on. And uh, the Greek word for press on is dioko, and it's a hunting word, and it means to hunt or pursue. It's also a running word that means to chase after. And so uh, the Great Hunt for God is about a man's greatest pursuit, uh, the greatest trophy he can ever acquire, uh, the greatest goal he can ever have is his uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's where the Great Hunt for God came from. It's turning men back to the greatest uh, pursuit of all, and that is uh, Jesus Christ. That's awesome. So do you, cool. do, you that is cool. do you do conferences, camps? Do you do mentoring? What does it look like? Yeah, this is fun because you guys have no idea what we do. Uh, when we started this, we wanted to do it as close to how Jesus did it as we could. And we saw the, the kind of the, the strategy a lot of churches were using and uh, a lot of the things we saw out there. And we really, quite frankly, want to do quite the opposite. And so we uh, are a very slow moving ministry. We start very small, and um, we have a, a model that asks men to reproduce themselves. So basically what we do is we've looked at manhood, and we said, how do we restore men to their lost identity? Well, a lot of organizations will sell curriculum, and uh, they'll have conferences, and these are all really good things. But we knew we wanted to be different. We wanted to have a unique niche in, in the in the ministry to men. And so what we did is we thought, okay, let's develop a ministry that is systematic in its approach. In other words, let's develop a ministry that moves men through the processes that they will go through in life. For example, uh, from, from zero to, let's say, 25 years old, a man uh, comes into life, and he is a family member. Uh, for 20 to 25 years of life, he is a learner. He sits under the authority of his parents. He hopefully falls in love, gets married, has a, has kids, uh, starts a family of his own, and he moves from a family member to a family leader. And he will be a family leader till he's probably in his uh, early to mid-50s, typically. Uh, at that point, his kids will move out. They will get married. They will have kids. He will become an empty nester. He will become a grandparent. And he will move into a phase that we call uh, legacy 
phase, or he becomes a coach. So he moves from a family member to a family leader to a family patriarch. So when men enter the great hunt for God, we take them through those three phases. It takes about six years. It's a long, slow process, but they enter as a team member where they learn the curriculum, and then they move, they pair up with another man, and they start a team of their own. So they become a team captain where they teach the material they've learned, and then two two to three years after that, the team they have divides and conquers and starts teams of their own, and now they move into this realm we call team coach, where they visit, they advise, they encourage, and they coach these teams. So they go from team member to team captain to team coach. And the way we illustrate that is our organizational brand. Uh, it's the arrow fletching. So if you remember the fletching, is those three feathers at the end of an arrow. Mm-hmm. So we kind of mm-hmm. use those to illustrate the three phases a man will go through. So it's a really, it's a systematic approach. We do have uh, books uh, we have uh, that are available that I'm not, I'm more about promoting the ministry though, because the ministry is really what makes us unique. It's, it's moving these men through the process of life in a small group um, uh, small group environment. We meet in coffee shops. We meet in churches. We meet in, you know, grocery stores. We have a little coffee sitting area. You know, these guys meet wherever they can, and so that's that's kind of our method. So you've been doing it two years. How how far along have some of the guys come, and what's that looked like? Because I yeah, I... so yeah, so we have a we. I actually started this when when God really called me. It was the end of 2010. So by January of 2011, I had recruited 15 men. We're an intergenerational movement, so my men ranged in age from 70 to 23. Actually, I had a man from Paso Robles on that team, (laughs) which is, I know, pretty close to where you're at right now, which is kind of fun. So we had Mm -hmm. these 15 men, and then two years after we launched our team, uh, those 15 men, I grouped them into pairs and one triad, and they started seven teams of their own, and those seven teams are working with about 85 total men. And then in the fall, three of those seven teams are launching 10 new teams, and then we'll see what happens. And so we're still, this thing is still evolving, but we're really seeing some life change, and we're really seeing guys uh, really stepping up. But we've got a couple ways we measure that change, um, but we're still a fledgling organization, and we're learning as we go. So, Nate, how's that? Oh, uh, wow. you're, you're talking journey stuff. Nate loves the journey stuff, the journey around the mountain yeah, for him. The journey. It is all about the journey. It's all about the journey. Yeah, it's about relation. And I love your uh, focus on starting small. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. I was thinking about it today. You know, I just a couple of weekends, I, I speak at a lot of events, and I speak at a lot of big events, and it's not unusual. In fact, it's quite common for me to get a real strong response from a room of a 1,000 or 2,000 guys yeah. and spend, but leave a city and leave nothing behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but two weekends ago, I went with another fellow to Springfield, Missouri, and spent two days with 18 men. Uh, just uh, you know, explaining the principles of what we do and then putting them into sharing groups, talking groups, getting them connected, talking to each other, kind of test driving this thing. Yeah. Uh, and I just heard yesterday that they, they they started their own meeting with Samson Society. They had their first meeting on Monday. Well, they had 23 guys at their first meeting. Great. Which, yeah. Uh, and when I look back at uh, the places where what God has given us to do, uh, the places where it's taken root are those places where we've been able to spend quality time 
with a small number of people. Mm-hmm. Now, quality time, man, you've taken quality time to, uh, uh, you know, you've taken it uh, really to the max. You spent two years with 15 guys. That's fan-freaking-tastic. Um, but I'm starting to wonder whether I need to just start imposing limits on the number of guys I'll work with at a time. Well, we do that, and we tell men, one of the things we decided was we were going to target the average church in America, which is typically under two or 300. They are mm-hmm. typically, they, you know, I love the bigger churches, but these smaller churches have more need, they have less resources. So we start with them. We also decided to intergenerational because we felt like we've been yeah. ignoring the wisdom of our uh, elder statesmen. And we wanted to be slow and systematic, and that means sloppy, and that means messy. And so for us, uh, and we realize that it's we're asking men to do something very difficult. We're saying commit to six to eight years, but I feel like uh, I believe that uh, part of the reason we've lost a lot of men is that we don't really call the greatness out of them. Right. We ask them to show up to a program and sit and listen. And uh, man, you should see these guys, man. These guys pucker when it's time for them to launch their own teams. It's really where the rubber meets the road. But you know, God is asking every man who has a family to lead, and so that's a huge responsibility. Wow. Interesting. Wow. So what what do you think you've seen is missing, uh, especially, you could almost take it by those three groups, mm-hmm. what has been missing from what both our culture is not teaching the young men, the fathers, and the, I, I actually really want to talk about the older men uh, yeah. as well. I think they get talked about the least, and frankly, Scripture, scripture gives them a big responsibility and I know way too few seniors who step up to that. They just become crabby and pathetic. And it, Yeah, well, it that's me... the problem. We live in a society that does not honor the elderly. Uh, our churches don't honor the elderly. What we do is we tend to—we uh, don't do it on purpose, but we tend to see the elderly as uh, they're the ones that push back. They don't like the music. They're grumpy. They don't like the, the voice or the level of music. And uh, we tend to put them in a silo. They have their own service. We'll call it traditional. And uh, we just kind of put them over here and put them aside. Well, the problem is they're the ones who are the greatest asset to the young men. But we have right. an 89-year-old man who uh, was at a church who runs our newsletter copies, and he read one of my newsletters was so inspired, he called me two days ago. We had a two-hour meeting, and he wants to come on staff as a volunteer fundraiser, and he's 89 <laughs> years old. And so what our older guys are seeing is, man, this is a ministry that really honors me. And what we've done, because it's a small group ministry based on small groups, we've actually removed music from the equation. Yeah. And you remove music from the equation, it really empowers all generations to come together. Uh, and, yeah. and I love it because the younger guys, the 24, 25-year-old men, inspire these 60, 70, 80-year-old men, and the 60, 70, 80-year-old men have so much life experience that's so rich, their failures and their successes. I mean, we've had meetings where our 60- and 70-year-old men are crying about their failures, and our 20-something men are just sitting at their feet, and they just can't believe the nuggets they're giving even to the failure of these older statesmen. Boy, that's beautiful. So I, so I think the other thing that's missing, Aaron, if I could say this, yeah. is, is we're missing, uh, and I don't know if this is a generational thing or not, but we're missing, uh, uh, we're missing the boat when we're not allowing our men to expose their secrets and to say, "Hey, I've got a problem," and uh, and for them to say that and not be ashamed, because I think that the greatest um, proof that I'm a follower of Jesus is I struggle with sin. 
You know, when I was a young man, my part, we'd throw tit porn movies and we'd have pizza and beer and high five and watch these porn movies. And when I became a Christian, the thing that I used to celebrate as a non-Christian, now I'm ashamed of. Well, what do I typically do with that? I hide it. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to tell our men, you can't hide this thing. Put it out in the open. You know, tell people why your smartphones are protected. You know, if a smartphone isn't protected, all that means to me is it belongs to a dumb guy. <laughs> you know, we've got to admit, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I've got, I've got some things I struggle with, and I think we need to, in the church, allow uh, men, not even allow it, but encourage men to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And I think it starts at the top and it works its way down. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you, how do you introduce that? I know that uh, this has been such a big part of the Samson Ministries, exactly that. So how do you introduce that to a group and create? The, the place, or do you just open it up and people start going there? Well, what we well, first of all, I think it starts with the leader, and I'm pretty open in whatever I speak about secrets and about you know where I'm at and my struggles. Uh, I do it in a way that I think is not weakening who I am, but strengthening who I am. But I think the second thing for us is we've actually uh, defined manhood, which is I know it's risky, but we feel like men are conquerors and men want something to shoot at. And so we've defined manhood, and our, our curriculum is based on the five components of manhood. And this material comes from Robert Lewis and Stu Weber's Four Pillars of a Man's Heart and different things. But um, we've defined manhood as protecting integrity, fighting apathy, pursuing God passionately, leading courageously, and finishing strong. And so our curriculum revolves around that. For example, we have, a, uh, we have 90 lessons, and one of the series is called Guardrails, which is setting up guardrails to protect your life. We have another series called Protect the Ball, which is very similar to guardrails. Uh, we have another series called No Secrets, which obviously is about exposing your secrets. You know, And we, we really address those issues head on. Say those, uh, that you went through a fast list of what, <laughs> the, the things that the guys are supposed to be about or doing. Give that list again. As far as the, the definition of manhood? Yeah, definition of yeah. manhood. Yeah, so we've defined manhood as, as five things, uh, protecting integrity, okay. and notice the progressive tense of the verb, so protecting integrity. The second one, which is more obscure, but really is maybe the greatest battle that men have, especially in our American society, is fighting apathy. In other words, fighting against those things that uh, want to harden our hearts. So not not allowing these things to push us down, but to fight against the things that are telling us we can't be the men that God has called us to be. And then I believe the apex or the summit of manhood, doesn't matter who you are or what you believe, the summit of manhood is the man who pursues God passionately. And uh, the backside, so if you look at manhood of the mountain, we have protecting integrity as a trailhead, fighting apathy as the ascent, uh, Pursuing God passionately is the summit. And the backside, where we often see men trying to relinquish their leadership and their authority to the local church instead of stepping up as the man that God has called them to be, is leading courageously. And uh, so we found that, you know, on the descent in Mount Everest, most people die on the descent. And why is that? Well, they, they relax, they, they, they don't take the precautions they did on the, the ascent, and uh, they die. And then at the end of the thing is finishing strong. And so we believe that the life that finishes strong is nothing more than the life that finishes every day strong, compounded over time. So we really encourage our men through our, our teaching to finish every day strong, you know, especially those hours from like 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock in the afternoon when we're tired. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that's awesome. That uh, I love that the backside is being thought about 
because finishing yeah. well is either not thought about at all or it is not practically explored in most yeah, yeah. journey kind of talk. Uh, yeah, well, especially with our older statesmen, because what does our society teach them? When you hit 62, 63, 64, you retire, and now they've retired from their career. Well, now the local church sees them as a nuisance or an annoyance, so now they've retired from the local church, and they've really hurt the entire body of Christ now, especially those younger men who really need them. So we really, we probably focus our energy more on that older group of men, because we need them more than any other group of men to step up and lead the way for those behind them. Now there is, just while you're talking, there there's a couple things coming to mind, and, and Nate, uh, you know, you're, you're the most ancient person in this conversation, so you can... <laughs> You can illuminate. Hey, I don't know. How old are you, Nate? I'm 57. Oh, you're older than me. Okay. <laughs> we, we will you reverence him. We'll reverence him. Uh, when I think back to almost every generation before maybe 19, the turn of the century, really, um, an older man was teaching the exact same stuff that the younger men were going to do. There wasn't that much change. There yeah. was very little progress. It was very slow. Now we have older guys who, if they don't learn how to speak into a culture that's very different, I mean, them, they have to find the common ground of what is the same, but speak it in a language that a younger man who doesn't necessarily have a lot of patience because of this culture is going to be able to start to learn to honor and respect because mm. simply honoring and respecting him because he's old only can last so long before you're just bored and you think it's irrelevant. Mm. Yeah. And so how, how can an older man engage younger men with that reality in mind? That's a good question. That's a really good question. You know, um, we have not had that issue uh, in our groups. The men really, uh, the young men are really wanting to hear from the older men. I, I'm, I'm lead, I lead a group right now. I'm still leading a team of about 15 men, and our, our particular team ranges from 74 down to 24. And they really uh, interact well. And what we do in our team meetings, our team meetings are fairly short. At the end of each team meeting, we, we have a huddle time where we pair four men together, and they deal with a question of the week, and then they pray together, and that, that group stays the same for the time they're together, and we they interact on a deeper level with that older uh, man or that man from a different generation. So that's kind of what we've been doing. we found that there isn't a communication barrier, but I'm sure that, I, that at least we're not seeing that like we see it in the local church. Is it is it possibly because the way the group is established, the young man is having his time to talk, and the older man is getting, I mean, he's 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 learning about that younger culture just by virtue of the relationship being two ways. Yeah, one of the things that we're finding out is the older men, uh, the young men share about their issues with uh, pornography. And a lot of the older men, quite frankly, don't struggle with those issues, not because they're older, but because when they were growing up, you had a magazine that you'd have to go buy it or find it. Yeah. Uh, it was it was not easily accessible. And so they typically have not grown up with the issues with these younger men. So when the younger men are talking about pornography and the struggles, and trust me, almost all of them are struggling with that on some level. Uh, the older men kind of shake their heads and go, man, I don't get it. I don't understand. 
So that's probably the biggest barrier. Technology has not been a barrier uh, except that it has offered younger men an instant access to pornography where the older men, uh, it was never an issue. So and Nate, most of those guys are still using flip phones and home lines. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, right, now, sure, how, what do you sure. think as you are, I mean, obviously there is a common, and did you hear my glass break just then? That was awesome. Uh, I don't know if you guys caught that. It'll nope. it'll be in the show. We have a special guest, my glass. Um, so as as you're doing this, as I mean, you started. You were just at the end of your forties, really, right, Nate? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how has it changed as you are getting past fifty five, and you're with a lot of guys who are in their young twenties? How do, how does all this feel to you? Um, well, one of the things I'm really grateful to be in the company of so many young men because it forces me to stay engaged with a culture uh, that uh, I think without that those relationships, I would be, uh, you know, separating from and just kind of drifting in my own little generational bubble. So it's good for me to have so many young men within my circle of influence. Uh, and it amazes me how... Uh, the percentage of young men within the Samson Society continues to climb. I mean, that's what I'm seeing. Uh, it, it used to be that a guy had to be in his 40s before he ran out of steam battling this porn thing or whatever his presenting behavior was. We'd kind of uh, and realize, be able to break through that wall of denial and accept the fact that this is bigger than me and I need help. Uh, what we're finding now is that you know, we got we got we've got men in their twenties who are fifteen year veterans of porn addiction just because oh, yeah. because they got started so early, which means they can run out of steam earlier and their real life can start earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I do find that there is just a lot you know, these young guys just have a deep hunger for the wisdom that uh, only an older man can provide. And it's great, you know, the oldest guy in our Samson group is uh, in his late 80s, and I'll tell you what, he, he, he commands, uh, you know, he, does, he doesn't demand it, but he is given his uh, real respect in our group, especially from the younger guys. People yeah. listen to what, such a fund of wisdom uh, yeah. that he carries. That's and I'm finding, you know, I was afraid that I would lose uh, my relevance, that people would, uh, you know, tune out as I get older. I'm a grandfather now. That that has not uh, so far proven to be the case. Uh, and I still have credibility on college campuses and on high school campuses. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing. Uh, so I really, really resonate with what I'm hearing about the necessity for maintaining the intergenerational character of God's yes. people. Yep, absolutely. And, and, and we're going to die on that hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one of the sad things that, yeah, the Church has, um, you know, kind of balkanized the congregation and, you know, sent the kids off to pretend Church Rather than involving them in the life of the, uh, of the church as, uh, as a whole, is there is it any wonder that our, you know, we're, that we've lost eighty percent of them in the transition to adulthood? 
Oh, yeah. Well, and also, Nate, if you think about it, uh, uh, if you're a man who is a pastor ages 60, 55 to 65, it is almost impossible to get hired in a church as a senior pastor because they see a 55 to 65 year old man as too old. And I would propose that that man is just coming into his sweet spot as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. So we throw him away in the church. It's, 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 it's sick and offensive, personally. Sick and yeah. offensive. I like it. Those are pugnacious yeah. words. Those are brawlers' I tend words. To, I, I, I tend to pull punches. I'm sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's great. Well, how can people uh, both check out what you're doing, check out some of these books where they're going to be able to read the principles a little more deeply? Uh, how do they get in touch with you if they have some questions? Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, the best way to do it, we we just had some volunteers donate about $25,000 of time and labor, and we redid our website, so we're at www. Apparently, I don't have to say www anymore, but since I'm 48, <laughs> I'm not relevant. <laughs> so, it's uh, Great Hunt for God. Just spell it out, .com. Our first video is our Get Started video, and uh, it tells about the organization, and uh, basically it tells about the need for us as a, 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 a nation or a world to reach out to men. This is not just a national thing, by the way. And uh, and they can, it, if they want to partner with us, they can get started. The resources are there. Um, you know, we don't push the resources because they're just a part of the package when guys join The Great Hunt for God. And so they can learn about all that on our website. All right, thegreathuntforgod.com. And That's right. We have been talking to Jim Ramos, and it is so good to hear of all these other cool men's things happening. And by the way, I am going to be in Sun River, Oregon, when you are at Sisters, Oregon, on the 7th. I'm heading to Sun River today for four days vacation Come with, on. My accountability, with my accountability partner and his wife. So we'll be there today, and I'm in Sisters on July 6th, so we have to get together. Okay, we will do it. And you said for four days? Let's see, what day is this? I'm I'm getting to Sun River on Sunday. This Sunday? Yep, night. Oh, oh we'll have to connect. I'll be there this week. And actually, that, that calendar date that you saw, uh, it, it changed. I'm actually speaking in Sisters on July 6th. Okay. Not the 29th. So anybody in the Oregon area that wants to meet Jim in person, hear him do his thing, July 6th at the Sisters Nazarene Church. That's uh, right. It's going to be a, a happening place because Sisters is a happening town. <laughs> Not a lot of clubbing, so just so you know. Uh, but, man, there's going to be some whittling happening somewhere. That's the home of Northern Exposure, is it not, Sisters? No, uh, no, that's up in Washington somewhere. Oh, okay, all right. But, yeah, I was a big fan of Northern Exposure. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, good deal. Thanks for hanging out with us, Jim, and we will be right back. There's a place where I come from. It's the place where I belong. Where you will never die. Wipe the tears off from your eyes. Sun and moon and stars above Never match this perfect love Just look to the painter's hands Like an ocean meets its sands Twisted castles in her hair Building mountains in the air Making profits Lending loans, ancient TVs 
back after that scintillating conversation. I'm pulling one of your words out for that, Nate. <laughs> how, how, how did it sound from the other side? I'm sorry? How, how did it sound to you from the other side hearing that word? Oh, hearing the, the – it, it was a scintillating experience, hearing <laughs> uh, you actually say the word scintillating. Nice. Uh, next week, we'll have you spell it. Uh, nice. That gives me time to Google it. <laughs> so uh, we want some mail. We want to hear from you. Do not be afraid to write down some of your thoughts, some of your questions, possibly your favorite poem that you've been uh, just kind of musing over this week. Send it to samsonpodcast at gmail.com. That's samson, without a P, podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Nate and I were discussing how Samson sometimes get a p gets a p thrown in. So yeah, yeah, yeah. According to Google, uh, according to Google, twelve percent of the time when people ser- search for Samson, they spell it with a p. There you go. See, education is happening. It's scintillating. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> samsonpodcast at gmail dot com, and we will be talking to you soon. Thanks for hanging out today at the Pirate Monk Podcast. Ah, so we go, so we go